immediately following the JFK assassination. It behooves us to examine the Lincoln-Greenback period of the 19th century a little more carefully. In today's message, we'll close out the discussion from Professor Kemmerer's perspective by taking a look at the post-Civil War period, 1865 to 1879, after which we'll review a few more economic myths that we covered in previous messages. Today's broadcast, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 17. segment of uh, Datumline. Today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 17. <clears throat> I should probably insert a little note here that uh, following this broadcast, I'll be joining Eli James for another two hours here on RBN. So if you haven't grown weary of the subject at hand, please join us for a discussion about the Federal Reserve System and its economic enslavement, oh, and a whole lot more. Anyway, as mentioned uh, on the other side of our first break, today's message will end our review of Professor Kemmerer's chapter on the greenbacks. This taken from his book, Money, published in 1935, by examining the post-Civil War economic history of the United States. Said Kemmerer on page 251, quote, When the war, this being the war for secession, when the war formally ended in the summer of 1865, the money stock, as he called it, of the United States, aside from the gold coin and most of the subsidiary silver, which did not circulate to any appreciable extent except on the Pacific coast, and aside from the notes of the Confederate states, which had become worthless, consisted chiefly of about $431 million of greenbacks, $15 million of United States government fractional notes, $146 million of national bank notes, and $143 million of notes of state banks. Did you hear anything about money in there? No, there wasn't any money mentioned, was there? It was just notes, notes, and more notes, okay? And, he said, a small amount of minor coins. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment and extract from that last sentence the mention of the notes of the Confederate states, which, you remember, he said had become worthless. When did they become worthless? Well, at the end of the war. You see, the defeated party faces immediate bankruptcy when its notes become absolutely worthless. Uh, but i got a question for you. Do you think your gold or silver coins will become worthless because you lost a war or lost an argument? Of course not. <laughs> yeah, but notes become worthless overnight. Why? Because it's faith that keeps them floating. 
And the faith is that you're going to pay off those notes when the war is over and you are the victor. When you're the defeated party, however, uh, your chances of paying off the debts uh, to your people are very slim indeed. Uh, now, you're going to have to pay the debts to your adversary because your adversary will usually extract reparations damages from you. Uh, and the North extracted some reparations from the South. Just ask any Southerner of Confederate history and he'll tell you. Anyway, uh, Professor Kemmerer said that, quote, this money, all of which uh, were notes of dubious quality, none of which, therefore, were money, despite statements to the contrary by Professor of International Finance. He said, this money uh, all circulated at parity with greenbacks. Okay, end quote. So you see, parity existed between IOUs only. This was not parity between IOUs and gold and silver. Uh, there was no parity there. So what he's saying is that one IOU was as good as another, or perhaps maybe we should say that one IOU was as bad as another. And you notice how Professor uh, Kemmerer excluded lawful money, gold and silver, from the money supply while simultaneously listing IOUs for money as if they were money. <laughs> and this guy was the conservative's answer to the socialist John Maynard Keynes. Now, would you omit any mention of meat, dairy, nuts, grains, fruits, and vegetables from the food supply, while at the same time listing futures contracts for wheat, corn, and soybeans as if those were the food? If so, let me know how tasty and nutritionally satisfying your next bowl of corn futures works out for breakfast. Now, the unlisted gold and silver coin did not admit their non-existence merely their non-circulation. Gold and silver coins were locked away in bank vaults. Some of it went overseas to pay international trade debts, and some of it went under the mattress because of lost public confidence when banks and Uncle Sam refused to honor their IOUs that were payable in gold or silver coin, and due to economic fears caused by the war itself. Now, the $15 million in face-value fractional currency notes, you remember, were issued when low-denomination silver coins and copper tokens went into hiding after the greenbacks were issued and began to immediately depreciate, taking the value of silver right along with them. Why? Because the legal tender law artificially tied the IOUs to the silver at a rate of one-to-one. One. So, when the value of those notes started to depreciate, the silver depreciated right along with it, even though, in fact, it never would have depreciated, which is why people melted them down, turned them into bullion, and sold them as a commodity in exchange for far more greenbacks than they could get if they were silver coins. Anyway, these shin plasters were issued in denominations down to what denomination? all the way down to three cents. Little pieces of paper that claimed to be three cents. Weren't they? Oh, they were cute little things, too. Now, according to the professor, we're still at page 251 now, quote, the great currency problem before the country at the close of the war was to get this money, well, it wasn't money, they were IOUs for money, 
to get this so-called money back to parity with gold and silver, end quote. Now, I've got an observation with regards to this statement as well, because this statement adds even more confusion to the bank-orchestrated pandemonium from which the country was already suffering. First, promises to pay money are not money. They were proxy tokens or claim checks for the lawful money, gold or silver. Even when those metals were stored in a bank vault, it was the gold and the silver that was used as money, and the proxy tokens circulated as a mere substitute for it. Second, going back to parity, which is what he was suggesting had to be done, means that there must have been a time when parity existed. No such animal. A. Greenbacks were an unlawful issue beginning in 1862, depreciating rapidly from the outset. To remedy the situation would require that they be paid down in lawful money. In other words, every greenback had to be redeemed with gold or silver coin so as to retire every note from circulation permanently. Well, that was never done. B. National banknotes only came on the scene after acts of Congress authorized them in 1863 and 1864, following suspension of specie payment by state chartered banks, you remember, in the year 1860. This was a time when no parity existed between notes and specie because there was no redemption of notes with lawful money. C. With regards to state banknotes, according to Kemmerer, and his statement was made on page 231 with regards to this, he said, these, quote, were of varying degree of goodness, which is to say they were of varying degree of badness. Now, this means that their parity against gold and silver coin prior to the war varied from one issuing banknote to another. Third, the only way to establish parity, in fact, between bank or treasury notes and the specie those notes claim to represent is for 100% reserves of specie on hand to redeem every single note, certificate, or demand deposit, which banks call checkbook money. That's being dollar for dollar. However, this never happened in all of U.S. history. Banks have always issued more credit instruments than gold and silver. In fact, they now issue more credit instruments against dollars of absolutely nothing that's supposedly on deposit. This is how bankers make a profit, albeit predicated on fraud. Preparations were made at the end of the war for a return to constitutional currency, the definition of which had evolved by then to mean non-legal tender notes that would seemingly claim specie at par. Quoting Kemmerer again, quote, The Secretary of the Treasury, Hugh McCullough, in his annual report of December 5, 1865, referred to the Legal Tender Act as a war measure and said that, quote, now we're going to quote Hugh McCullough, quote, they ought not to remain in force one day longer than shall be necessary to enable the people to prepare for a return to the constitutional currency. End quote. What does that mean? Well, it means that at least the Secretary of the Treasury, Hugh McCullough at this time, 
realized that we had left constitutional currency behind. How? With the Legal Tender Act of 1862. All of the statements by populists, to the contrary, notwithstanding. McCullough went on to say, quote, It is not supposed that it was the intention of Congress, by these acts, to introduce a standard of value in times of peace lower than the coin standard, much less a per- much less to perpetuate the discredit which must attach to a great nation which dishonors its own obligations. Oops, there's our music. I guess we better stop here. We got another break. This is Datum Line, and I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. to this segment of Datum Line, today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 17. On the other side of the break, I was uh, halfway into a sentence. Uh, We were quoting uh, from Professor Kemmerer's book, Money, written in 1935. He, in turn, was quoting the Secretary of the Treasury, Hugh McCullough, this in the year 1865. And so I'll go back to that sentence. He said... McCullough now, it is not supposed that it was the intention, that being the spirit of the law, the intent, of Congress by these acts, and he meant the Legal Tender Acts, to introduce a standard of value in times of peace. See, he called this a wartime measure. Uh, It was an emergency measure. So we're not going to introduce a standard of value in times of peace lower than the coin standard, that was gold and silver, that the United States was established upon, pursuant to the Constitution at Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 5, Article 1, Section 10, Paragraph 1, and the Coinage Act made pursuant to the Constitution, that being the Coinage Act of April 2, 1792. Much less, he said, to perpetuate the discredit which must attach to a great nation which dishonors its own obligations by unnecessarily keeping in circulation an irredeemable paper currency, end quote. You see, Lincoln greenbacks have been irredeemable now. In fact, they would be irredeemable for 17 years, even though they bore a promise to pay money on them. There just was no deadline as to when they were going to pay. A note has to say that it's going to pay either at a specified time or on demand. Lincoln greenback legal tender notes did neither. They simply were promises to pay. But they didn't know when the war was going to be over and when the Treasury was going to start being refilled with the gold and silver coin with which to effect redemption. So they were not accurately uh, defined as notes. Uh, They were kind of half-hearted notes, I guess you might say. But anyway, McCullough said that it would be to the discredit of a nation when it dishonors its own obligations. Well, what were the obligations? United States notes. Notes are an obligation. They are an evidence of debt. They are debt instruments, despite what all of the populace claim they are when they say that they are debt-free. They are absolutely not debt-free. They are obligations. Okay? And how do you dishonor an obligation? 
by refusing to pay it off. And he said, said the Secretary of the Treasury, that it is to the discredit that would, would attach to a great nation, which dishonors its own obligations by unnecessarily keeping in circulation an irredeemable paper currency, end quote. We'll turn to page 252. Quote, on December 18, 1865, the House, by a vote of 144 to 6, adopted a resolution of cordial concurrence, said Kemmerer, stating, quote, now we're going to quote a statement from the House of Representatives, actually, quote, in the view of the Secretary of the Treasury in relation to the necessity of the contraction of the currency, in other words, we're going to start paying down the notes, we're going to reduce the amount of notes in circulation, with a view to as early a resumption of specie payments as the business interests of the country will permit, end quote. See, it's an economic activity. It's going to put gold and silver back into the treasury. So the business interests of the country are going to be taken into consideration. Now, on page 253, however, the professor introduced his readers to several schools of thought which developed during the post-war years. Three were of varying belief regarding a return to specie redemption with a reduction of circulating United States notes. Now, there was another school that advocated a perpetual but limited supply of greenbacks. You know, we're going to mathematically regulate the number of greenbacks in supply. You've heard that sort of story before from the populace of today. And these greenbacks, they said, were expected to reach parity with gold, one-to-one, -one, due to an increased trade and an increasing population. And they thought if they kept the notes at a certain uh, volume in circulation and trade began to increase and the population began to increase, that greenbacks would reach parity. That's what they said. Now, doesn't mean that it was going to happen, but that's what they hoped would happen. And there was a fifth school of thought which advocated a permanent system of cheap paper money, and lots of it. Well, that's the populist school of today. Now, the first three schools of thought appear to have favored paper as well, so long as some measure of specie undergirded it. So you see that there was a Hegelian dialectic process already at work, the false paradigm, as we call it. Now, the last two schools were openly favorable to fiat money, the question was, just how much of it, and how, or by whom, was it to be regulated? So both sides of the argument, even though you get five different schools of thought, you get the so-called gold bugs on one side, three different schools of those, and then you have two schools of so-called paper money advocates. But both of them actually want to circulate paper. Okay? You don't find very many people out there who say we ought to be using gold and silver coin, just like the Constitution says, and just like the Bible would uh, infer if it doesn't say it expressly. Uh, there are very few of those kind of people out there. Well, gee, here's another break. Uh, this is the halftime break. Our message today, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 17. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, and this is Statham Line. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. 
because you can handle the truth. Welcome back to this segment of Datum Line. Today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 17. Uh, we'll turn to page 255 of Professor Edwin Kemmerer's book, Money, published in 1935, where he says, quote, Bonds floated prior to the war, this being the war for secession, or what we in Maine, when I was a child, was I was taught to call it the Civil War. I'm not sure what was civil about it, but nevertheless, bonds floated prior to the war would presumably be paid in specie as they matured because the government had received specie for them from the public when they were sold. Boy, just imagine that. Back in the days when people actually had silver and gold in in possession and they could buy government bonds and they use gold to buy the bonds with. Boy, that's a day long, long, long gone by, huh? Anyway, he says on January 1, 1863, a debt of the federal government contracted in 1842 for $8 million became due, and Chase, this to be Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, Salmon Portland Chase, actually, paid it in gold. So $8 million in gold was paid when that debt of uh, 1863 came due that had been contracted for in 1842. Okay, So that was about a 20-year uh, bond. Okay. Now, while some of the laws authorizing the sale of notes and bonds expressly call for their payment in coin, both the principal and the interest, other laws were silent as to how bonds and notes were to be paid. Paying off the legal tender notes, those being the legal tender greenback notes, the U.S. notes, would take a separate piece of legislation to get the ball rolling. And the impediment there, too, was that there was a depression that began in 1873. Notice how depressions, bank panics, seem to have an affinity for times of war. They either happen before or after or both. This is just a wonderful coincidence, isn't it? And that depression began in Vienna, Austria, and uh, kind of carried on over over here into the United States. <clears throat> now, on page 257, Professor Kemmerer introduces us to the Resumption Act. Now, you might remember that it was... Uh, Oh, I think it was Ellen Brown in her book, The Web of Debt, where she said that uh, Lincoln Greenbacks weren't promises to pay money. They weren't debt instruments. You see, they were the money. There was no need. She was insistent that there was no need uh, to pay them uh, in money later. They were the money, she said. Well, <clears throat> the reason we had a resumption act is because we had to resume payment of the notes, those obligations which the federal government had contracted with the American people uh, to pay down. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> so the Resumption Act, which on page 258, Professor says, was passed on January 14, 1875, but it was made effective four years later. It would go into effect on January 1, 1879, when the Treasury was likely to have sufficient specie to begin paying off Uncle Sam's IOUs. 
Turning to page 259, he says, quote, The only form of specie in which redemption could be made was gold. Oh, well, why is that? Well, he goes on. He says, since silver dollars, <clears throat> excuse me, no such thing as a silver dollar, dollar it's the dollar of silver. But uh, he says, since silver dollars had not circulated in the United States for more than a generation and had had their legal tender quality removed in 1873. Now, isn't that a coincidence? That's the year that the Depression began. And their legal tender uh, character was restored in 1878. That would be with the Bland-Allison Act. And we'll probably get to that in a later broadcast. <clears throat> now, efforts were underway to replace our constitutional bimetallic monetary system of gold and silver with a gold standard. The bankers were on their way to implementing what they would call a gold standard, <clears throat> which would be defined to deceive and pick the pockets of the American people. Follow along now as a few more pieces of this bewildering puzzle fall into place. Quote, <clears throat> because there was comparatively little gold in the country, says Kemmerer, and a good share of that was circulating on the West Coast, end quote, it was necessary to rebuild Treasury gold reserves by some other means than import duties and customs. See, the federal government didn't have an income tax. I don't even think it had excise taxes. It was funded by import duties and customs. Said Kemmerer, quote, To obtain gold, therefore, the secretary was forced to sell bonds abroad, a policy which brought upon him an avalanche of criticism, not only from the radical Greenback Party, but from many more conservative people as well. Now, the Greenback Party came along uh, about 1876, and uh, it managed to poll voter, voters in uh, national elections from 1876 to 1884. Uh, then that party kind of disappeared, but uh, it became basically the, the populace thereafter. So you notice here he says that in order to obtain gold, the Secretary of the Treasury was forced to sell bonds abroad. Well, if you're going to sell bonds to get gold, do you own the gold? You're in debt on the gold. It's, it's not yours. <laughs> You've only borrowed the gold. Yeah. Oh, well, anyway. For a time, Benjamin H. Bristow, Secretary of the Treasury, did not take any action for accumulating a gold reserve. Now, you notice we've got a different Secretary of the Treasury now. We went from Chase to McCullough to Bristow, B-R-I-S-T-O-W. Uh, he didn't take any action for accumulating a gold reserve in hope that he could obtain from Congress authority to redeem those notes directly in bonds. Well, what are bonds? Bonds are IOUs. Well, what are notes? Well, notes are IOUs. So you're going to redeem one IOU and another IOU. Well, what's the purpose of all of that? And is that really redemption? Well, no, it's not really redemption. He hoped to redeem United States notes or IOUs in bonds. And, you know, an interest-bearing IOU uh, would, has a fixed date of maturity. But they would have pacified a segment of the public who would wait a little bit longer 
to be paid in gold plus the interest to be paid in gold. And that would give the secretary a little bit more time to fill the vault with gold coins obtained from tax revenues. Now, we're still on page 259 with Kemmerer. He says, quote, But when, in March of 1877, John Sherman became Secretary of the Treasury under President Hayes. Now, do you remember that name, John Sherman? Well, at the time, he was chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. He was the brother of William Tecumseh Sherman, you know, that infamous general with his march to the sea who had plundered and ravaged the South. Uh, he was quite a character. Anyway, uh, so now we have John Sherman, who was a friend of the banks, by the way. Remember, he pleaded uh, the cause for the banks, and the banks wanted legal tender quality to be applied to U.S. notes. See? Uh, but he didn't tell the whole reason. At least we didn't read the whole reason as to why the banks would want legal tender. You have to go back to a couple previous broadcasts to find out what that was. Anyway, <clears throat> Senator Sherman, who is now the Secretary of the Treasury under President Hayes, initiated a vigorous policy of accumulating a reserve, that being a reserve of gold, and of making other preparations necessary for carrying through the resumption program. Now, in the space of three years, according to Kemmerer, the volume of paper currency under Secretary of Treasury John Sherman was reduced by $66 million. And this created its own set of consequences which spawned enough opposition to ensure legislation past May 31, 1878, to prohibit any further reduction in circulating greenbacks and required the Treasury to reissue them when received. This act made greenbacks a permanent fixture until replaced by Federal Reserve notes many years later and gave Congress a taste for stealing the public's wealth during peacetime by continually reissuing those empty buckets, those United States notes you remember, to get the strip mine coal that I talked about in the previous broadcast, that strip mine coal being the public's wealth, if you recall my word picture from an earlier data line broadcast. But Sherman, who championed the bankers for legal tender United States notes, now introduces a new twist in a developing scheme that would eventually become the Federal Reserve System. Page 260 now, quote, Sherman believed that the lowest gold reserve consistent with safety with which the country would be able to resume specie payments was 40%, or about $138 million. Where, do you, where have we ever heard that figure before? Well, the Federal Reserve opened its doors in 1914, and they began with a 40% gold reserve. 60% of their notes were fraudulent. Here's the Secretary of the Treasury believing that we could, we could have, consistent with safety, we could have the country put back on a specie basis with only 40% gold in the, in the vault. I wonder where he got those, those figures. I wonder who helped them achieve uh, that rationale. I bet he conferred with a few bankers. Now, by January 1, 1879, that's the date that we have to resume specie payment now, he had accumulated $133 million. Well, 40% was 138 So he actually had less than 40% of a reserve against all of the outstanding notes. And two-thirds of this 
came from the sale of bonds, and one-third from surplus revenue. Here's what Kemmerer says, quote, Under his strong policy, strong? Strong policy? 40% reserve is strong? Wow. <laughs> Under his strong policy, the gold value of the greenbacks slowly but surely advanced. And two weeks before January 1st, 1879, greenbacks were quoted at par, end quote, Professor Kemmerer. Quoted where? And quoted by whom? Do you smell a rat? Perhaps orchestrated by big city media and their friends on Wall Street? You see, it was almost 19 years since banks suspended specie payments back in 1860, and 17 long years during which the Treasury refused to redeem Lincoln Greenbacks. Yet here it is, only two weeks before resumption is supposed to begin, and the public at that time wasn't even sure this was going to happen. And the media and Wall Street have announced to the public that greenbacks, which can only claim 40%, not even that, probably 35%, of the gold they're supposed to represent are said to be trading at par, one-to-one, for gold coin in the so-called free market. Well, I think that there's something orchestrated about that little coincidental piece of information. But populists will at least agree with me on one thing. Wall Street has been in bed with the politicians in Washington for a very long time. Now, in our next broadcast, we'll review the Lincoln-Greenback period from yet another perspective. We'll turn the clock back to 1903 this time with a book, the short title being Contest for Sound Money by A. Barton Hepburn, remember hearing about him, doctor of law, ex-comptroller of the currency for the United States, ex-superintendent of banking for New York, and vice president of Chase National Bank. So we can again expect a little bias from his court as well. But perhaps by reading between the lines, we should be able to glean some kernels of truth nonetheless. In fact, quite a few. In the remaining few minutes, however, Let's pick up where we left off in our review of some economic myths that we had unraveled in previous broadcasts. And three of those myths we covered, oh, probably about two broadcasts or more back. The first one was that we're, on, we're in a monetary crisis, remember? The second one, that people cash checks at the local bank. And the third myth, that we use paper money. Well, the answer to those is no, we, we don't have a monetary crisis. There isn't any money in circulation. There isn't any cash in bank vaults to redeem checks, and we don't use paper as money. Paper has never been used as money. It's too heavy. So let's just take a look at one more myth in the amount of time that we have available. Maybe we can take a look at a couple. Myth number four, we're heading for a cashless society. You've probably heard that one. I remember hearing that from a Baptist preacher. Oh, golly, it must have been almost 30 years ago. Well, this one, this myth, this one gained traction among Bible students who see an economic crisis as a harbinger of future prophecy in the Revelation letter. However, as we pointed out in myth number one and two, and probably even number three, America left cash money behind almost 50 years ago. 
Modern-day preachers are nearly one-half century behind actual world events. And God knows the world events. He doesn't uh, change his speech pattern to match our misconceptions. He doesn't watch the news on TV, and he doesn't read the Wall Street Journal to find out how he's going to interact with you. And not to mention the fact that modern-day preachers uh, cannot correctly identify the players on the world stage, namely who the Israelites are. A fifth myth, almost my rhymes, a fifth myth is that gold was used to back our money until 1934. Now, if people only knew how absurd this statement is and the devastating consequences of repeating this myth, they'd adopt an accurate vocabulary overnight. Gold, along with silver, was declared to be as money by federal statute at Section 11 of the Coinage Act, April 2, 1792, and later codified at Title 12 United States Code at Section 152. If gold was the money, for example, what would you back it with? You don't back money with anything. However, promises to pay gold or silver, both of which were defined as lawful money, were supposedly backed by gold or silver. But a promise to pay gold or silver, which is lawful money, is not gold or silver, and it is not lawful money. Gold and silver certificates were not the money, nor were Federal Reserve notes or United States notes. And we have monetary experts out there who cannot discern between gold and a mere promise to pay it. Well, there's another break coming, okay? So we're going to stop for that break. This has been the Datum Line. Our message today, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 17. Welcome back to the final segment of uh, Datum Line, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 17. And as I mentioned, following this broadcast, I'll be joining Eli James for another two hours here on RBN. Uh, we might as well hit one more myth and use the time up here that we have available. Myth number six, the United States was on the gold standard when the crash of 1929 occurred. So obviously gold didn't prevent the Great Depression. That's what populists will tell you. Okay, now advocates for another centrally planned, centrally regulated credit system can't wait to repeat this piece of nonsense. First off, the United States was never on a gold standard where every Federal Reserve note, United States note, gold certificate, national bank note, or demand deposit was redeemable at par, dollar for dollar, in gold coin. This, despite the fact that every circulating note and certificate claimed to be redeemable in gold. But talk is cheap, and a banker's promise is as cheap as it gets, particularly a central banker's promise. Second, <clears throat> there are no less than three different kinds of gold standard, each with a wide variety of meanings, all subject to later revision. There was a gold coin standard, a gold bullion standard, and a gold exchange standard, and differences within each of those. The Federal Reserve System, for example, opened for business in 1914 with a 40% gold reserve. That's called a gold standard, 40% reserve, which meant that up to 60% of their notes could not claim the gold they promised to pay. 
That's a gold standard. That's not the kind of gold standard the American people thought existed because they were reading what each and every one of those notes said, and every single note said it was renewable, when in fact 60% of them were not. Gold reserves were reduced in 1945 to 25%, which meant that up to 75% of the Federal Reserve's notes were fraudulent. Okay, But the bankers who owned the Fed held all the claim checks to the gold, which after 1934, the American people were no longer allowed to own. Funny how some people get all the breaks. In 1968, Congress dropped the gold reserve to 0%. They probably won't go much lower than that. What do you bet? Third, the gold standard imposed upon the American people was not the same gold standard everyone was led to believe pursuant to the circulating promissory notes. If 60% of their IOUs had the promise to pay gold deleted, then the Federal Reserve might have argued that people accepted them for what they were and that no injury was done to the public. But this was not the case. The people were told, in effect, that a 100% gold reserve existed when, in fact, it did not. Nor was it likely that 100% of the note holders would try to claim their gold at the same time. The bankers knew this from the very beginning and used it to their advantage. But Congress helped them do it. So why should we trust Congress to remedy a crime for which they receive the immense profit of virtually unlimited federal funding? I don't know. doesn't make sense to me. Uh, the Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. I don't know why you can trust them because they hold public office. I, I think they're probably less trustworthy once they have the power of public office. What do you think? Well, anyway, that's kind of how I see banking. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not really a fan of banking. I could just imagine a world where there were no banks. Can you imagine such a world? Most people can't. Well, this is uh, the end of another installment of Data Mine. I hope this has been of interest to you. Next week, we'll go into the legal tender debates again from a little different perspective. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope this has been of interest to you. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, and this is Datum Line. smell some funky little things going on? Let me share this story with you. It's not so much a story, it's something I wrote years ago. Read your history, people. Stock markets collapse on Friday, bank seizures, closures, holidays take place after business hours on Friday. Do currencies or governments also collapse on Friday? <laughs> Tomorrow's Friday. Will the end come on this Friday, or will the inevitable collapse hold off for a while? The next round of the worst financial crisis in a hundred years is coming, people, and the government is out to make you and I pay for it. And will your savings survive a global banking wipeout? What happens when the U.S. sees hyperinflation? What if taxes soar not only for the rich? Can you survive if the stock market tanks? 
Look, between a stock market wipeout, waves of bank failures, soaring government spending that will lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of the dollar's value, isn't it time that you prepare for the uncertainty which lies ahead? Protect your money now or forever kiss it goodbye. My friends, I offer you over six decades experience of hard asset ownership and knowledge. And I'm prepared to handle the smallest detail in the balanced protection of your portfolio. For as the future of uncertainty continues to blanket this nation of ours, I believe that I can offer you the privacy, safety, security, and possibly some profitability which you deserve. And so I invite you to visit SierraMondrePreciousMetals.com for further information regarding protecting your wealth. Or call me, Jeffrey Bennett at 602-799-8214 or by email at kettlemoraineltd at cox.net for private consultation. Once again, our phone number 602-799-8214. It's almost Friday. Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plants. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste by going to rbnhemppaste.com. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pastures meats, and even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you have definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. 
raised the way nature intended. Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit drinksupertea.com. The first word is drink, spelled D-R-I-N-K, then the word super, then the word tea. The complete website is drinksupertea.com. Or call us at 818-965-9113, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113, drinksupertea.com. My name is John. I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back, uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it, and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee. It's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumers' house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. Hey there, are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new Ease-Off Drop and Lift? What in the world is an Ease-Off Drop and Lift? Our Ease-Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control. That sounds great, but can I afford it? Sure, and the Ease-Off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits. Okay, I'm convinced. Where can I get my Ease-Off? Go to EaseOff.com. That's E-A-Z-E-O-F-F dot com. And hurry because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. 
Ethoff LLC, 417-932-6419. Homeowners, are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Call toll-free 1-855-2-KEEP-IT. That's 1-855-2-KEEP-IT today. Do you or someone you know suffer from chest pain, blood pressure, cholesterol, or irregular heartbeat? Are you looking for a more natural solution to overcome these health challenges? You hear the ads all the time. If this stuff's so good, why doesn't my doctor prescribe it? That's easy. Doctors are not trained in natural medicine. Extendivite Heart Tonic does want you to be as healthy as you can be. And it really works. Take Extendivite for six months and your doctor will say, I don't know what you're doing, but don't stop. It's working for you. Get the dependability of Extendivite. Just see how you feel in six months. A two-month supply of either capsules or liquid is only $69.95 plus shipping and handling. Call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Hello, hello, hello from beautiful Colorado. My name is Samuel Jungkay, and I am currently the lead Shiloji hunter and master herbalist for Colorado Shiloji Company. In this video series, I will be discussing what we believe is the greatest of all adaptogenic superfoods and the single greatest natural healing remedy gifted to us by Mother Earth. I think you too will become as excited by this incredible substance called Shiloji as we were and are after our discovery of this amazing gift right here in beautiful, colorful Colorado. You may already know Shiloji by other names. Shilojit, Momio, Momi, Mami, Mineral Pitch, Asphaltum, and others. Shiloji literally translates to destroyer of weakness and conqueror of mountains. Shiloji has been in use for thousands of years and is considered as the highest valued cure-all of any earthly substance. Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N. The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Syrah grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller molecules, penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skincare products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit naturalearthmedicine.com. 
That's naturalearthmedicine.com.